chapter 7 this morning. We'll soon be reading from verse 7 through verse 12. Back in 1461, Aesop's fables were one of the first books ever published to come with illustrations. That was done in Bamberg, Germany. They were very quickly for that time translated into English by William Caxton in 1484, and they contain some of the best-known stories to Western civilization. The Boy Who Cried Wolf, The Tortoise and the Hare, The Lion and the Mouse. These were incredibly short stories meant to give sort of moral, and there we go, moral lessons to children. Unlike the Brothers Grimm stories, which at times were much longer, and for anyone who's ever actually read Brothers Grimm's tales, incredibly gory, these were were much more basic, much shorter, and much more to the point. The Goose That Laid the Golden Egg is one of those stories. It's well known, it's used in sayings even today, and it it is meant to highlight the peril of greed. The Library of Congress has this as its translation from the German. There was once a countryman who possessed the most wonderful goose you can imagine. For every day when he visited the nest, the goose had laid a beautiful, glittering golden egg. The countryman took the eggs to market and soon began to get rich. But it was not long before he grew impatient with the goose because she gave him only a single egg every day. He was not getting rich fast enough. Then one day, after he had finished counting his money, the idea came to him that he could get all the golden eggs at once by killing the goose and cutting it open. But when the deed was done, not a single golden egg did he find, and his precious goose was dead. Well, that ended poorly for him. We all get the point. The point is that everyone needs a good vet friend to be able to do surgery when the time comes. Now, greed is bad. And it causes us greater loss in the end. It's, it's right there on the page. It's right in front of us. It's a good little story to help us see that. But perhaps what's more on point is to ask what we would do if someone tried to sell us that very goose. And said, hey, I've got a goose that lays golden eggs for you. And the first thing you would do is say, well, I need to see that. And even if they pulled out a golden egg, You've seen enough Netflix magic specials to know that you can be deceived. And you would say, I don't think so. I I need more evidence and more evidence. It's just, it's too good to be true. We've been conditioned to know that things are oftentimes too good to be true. We are told of golden egg laying geese all the time. We're told that we should invest in gold because that's where all the real money is. We should invest in banks because that's where the real money is. You should invest in Bitcoin. Remember that thing? That's where all the money is. And our experience tells us not only do good things come to an end, but there are always limits on goodness in our world. There are some things that are just too good to be true. I would like to challenge that this morning. Go with me to the book of Matthew. And read with me verses 7 through 12 of the seventh chapter. And there we find our Lord saying this Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who seeks, for everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you? If his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And this is the word of our God. Just two things to bring to your attention today from Matthew 7, 7 through 12. First, we have a better golden goose. We have a better golden goose. There are a few passages in all of Scripture that sound quite like this and offer anything coming close to what Jesus offers this today. Jesus is apparently offering up to everybody who can hear his words unrestricted prayer as an enticement simply to get us to pray. And before we even seek to kind of explain the passage in its fullness to get at the, the real meaning of it that so many people insist upon, just stand at awe at the nature of what Jesus is saying here. He says, ask and seek and knock. God will hear your prayers and will answer them. Come to him with anything that you might need. Come with great things, with small things, with the insignificant desires of your heart. Come with your best intentions, with your selfish motivations, with all of your deficient desires and the petty askings that you have throughout the rest of your day. Ask and it will be given. And frankly, there's nothing quite like it. And we ought to notice, honestly, that within the text itself, there is nothing that limits what Jesus is saying here. I think so many come to this passage and immediately have to believe that Jesus is being hyperbolic or exaggerating, over-exaggerating the nature of prayer and God's nature in answering it. I will tell you, there is no textual warrant for that at all. There's none. There's nothing in this passage that makes it seem like he is being hyperbolic at all or, or over-exaggerating anything of the reality. The only thing that makes us think that is our experience. The only thing that makes us think that is the fact that we know good things come to an end and we know that sometimes offers are too good to be true. But even in the nature of the explanation, he points us in the direction of taking his word at its worth. Notice he says, ask and it will be given to you. And you might ask, well, why is that the case? And he explains in verse 8, ask and it will be given to you. Why? Because if you ask, it will be given to you. Like, there's no exaggeration there. His explanation is almost a restatement of the exact same thing. Two times he repeats it as though I'm not exaggerating. Prayer does not have to be idyllic in intention or selfless or even well thought out. Those things are important. I'm not saying that it's good to come to him with rancid desires. I'm saying that it's better to come to him, though, than to have the best intentions and to keep your mouth shut. Take the example that he gives here, which, by the way, incidentally, I hope that every time it's read, Jesus meant for this to mock Satan when he's being tempted and there's stones there and Satan says, why don't you make them into bread? Jesus is like, if I had wanted bread and I had asked for bread, would my father have given me stones to turn into bread? No, he would have given me bread. 
But Jesus compares us to children here. Now, I know that the, the example is a little bit misguided because we're also the parents in this situation, but before God, we are the children. And I don't know if you've ever had children, been around them, seen one in public, but the younger they are, the more that the axis of the earth turns around their presence. And when they ask for things, they're not thinking of what is good for you as the loving parent. They're not thinking of their siblings. They're not thinking of anything. They are solely thinking of their own desire. And Jesus seems to be imploring us to pray that way. Come to the Father with your request. Pray that way. And he is insistent that God will answer those prayers. So insistent that, again, he repeats the exact same three things all over again. It's not the mark of good theology, but of little trust to temper what the Lord says here. It is a soul who doesn't believe what Jesus is saying when it comes to prayer to temper this in some way, shape, or form. The truth is, it is not that God is unable to answer our prayers. It's not that he doesn't want to answer our prayers. Frankly, the fact that we don't pray, we simply believe that he won't do it. This brings us back to the question, I think, of why, why do we even need to pray? Why does God make it so important that we pray? We're told earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus tells us that we don't need to babble before God back in chapter 6, verse 8, that you know, God knows what we need before we ask. If God knows what we need and he is good to give it to us, why does he insist on the middleman of prayer? It's because God wants to give to those who believe. Prayer is one of the most insistent marks of belief. Do you believe that a God exists who will give you the requests of your mouth? Do you believe that God exists who cares about your needs and will meet your needs and even, even the longings and the desires of your heart? Do you believe that he is there? If the answer is yes, then you are one who will pray. This is why prayer works. Because you've got to believe that God will do what is said here. It is a mark of faith. Prayer has to insist upon its own belief that God is present and caring and giving and powerful. So believe and pray. Insist in your heart that God is actually like what Jesus makes him out to be. He's ready and able to fulfill needs and desires that you have, waiting with power to provide all that you long for. The book of James, the end of our Bible, the brother of the Lord, wrote a letter in the first century. It's one of the earliest letters that we have in the New Testament. I'm, the more I read the Sermon on the Mount, the more I think of the book of James, the more I'm pretty sure that James is just a running commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 4, verse 2, he makes a very clear case. He's talking to people. Those people apparently had problems, and he says this to them. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. In other words, whether or not the murder thing is, is sort of, in its own way, hyperbolic, he's saying, there are things in this world that you want. There are desires that you have that are unmet. 
Do you know why you have them? Do you know why you fight and quarrel with other people? Because you think you've got to wrestle these things from the world. You think you've got to get them with your own two hands. You have not because you ask not. Go to the Lord in prayer. And even the nature of these prayers ought to stun us. We, we often talk about the acronym ACTS when we tell people how to pray. The A stands for adoration, that we lift up the goodness of who God is. The C stands for confession, we confess before him our faults and our failings. The T stands for thanksgiving, that we pray in thankfulness for what God has given. And its complement then is S, it's supplication. Praying not for the things that God has given, but for things that he will give in the future. Praying for his help and aid in certain ways. What Jesus says here is all S. It's all supplication. It's all, God, give me the thing that I want. As though, in some strange way, it's honoring to God to insist in prayer that he is as rich and as good as Jesus makes him out to be and can give out of his storehouse whatever it is that you might need. We would be wrong, however, not to realize that there is there is something of an asterisk or a footnote on this that we do need to mention. We know whenever there's an asterisk or a footnote, things are about to get worse. Companies do this all the time. I remember when I was a kid, I don't know, I'm sure that this came up before, but I never had thought about it, and I was with my mom, and there was a sale going on. It was buy one, get one, and the thought came to me like, we can take this place, mom. You don't understand. We can buy the expensive stuff and then get the, or buy the cheap stuff and get the expensive stuff for free. They'll never see it coming. And she's, she told me that, no, they've got a policy. You have to buy the more expensive thing. And I was like, oh, man, that's pretty brilliant. Pretty brilliant. Right? Footnotes ruin everything. I was going to be, in my head, a millionaire. But apparently that wasn't what was going to happen. Asterisks ruin everything. And here, here's an asterisk. There is an asterisk here. But the deal is with this particular asterisk. It doesn't limit the generosity of what Jesus is saying here. It doesn't make the deal worse. This asterisk actually makes it better. Let us read the whole thing carefully. Because if Jesus came to you or me and asked us, say, I've got this thing about prayer I want to say. I want, I want people to be sure to ask the Father in prayer. And he came to us and he said, so what can I... What could I use to illustrate that? I'll say, easy. My kids badger me for cereal all the time. They come to me, Dad, can I have cereal? And I'm like, sure, go have a bowl of cereal. There you go, Jesus. So it's, it's like they ask for this thing, and I give them this thing. And that seems pretty, pretty straightforward, right? That's a, I think it's a pretty good illustration. I'm generous with my cereal. My kids eat tons of cereal. So they ask, and I give. And, and it seems like that's kind of what Jesus is getting at. But you'll notice that that's not the illustration that he uses, I mean, true, his society was bereft of the greatness of cereal that way. But also, it's not, they ask for a bread and you give them bread and you're evil. That's, that's not what Jesus says. And also, in the very wording of verse 7, while the word it is there, and I don't know how to translate it without that, that makes us think that what you're asking for is what you receive. But that is not necessarily true. It's actually better in verse 8 when he restates it in a slightly different way. Everyone who asks receives. He doesn't say that you receive what you ask for, 
but you do receive. Now apply the illustration to that. Apply the illustration to that. He says, you are evil. Your, your own mind and your heart is twisted. You, you don't perceive everything the way you ought to. You're selfish in your own motives, even as a parent. And yet when your children come to you and they ask you for something as simple as fish or bread, I don't know, my children have never come to me and like pleaded with me for fish, but this is a different culture, right? So the basic needs of the world, when they ask you for those things, you don't provide to them worse. You give them at least what is good. This is, if you were evil and still you know how to do good things, which is a, a statement that warrants a ton of attention that we can't give time to this morning. If you who are evil still know how to give good things, then how much more a God who is good? When you ask for bread, he certainly won't devalue what he's giving. And when he says how much more, he means when you ask for things, he will give you better things than that. So you can come to him with anything you can come to him with something that's stupid and, and going to harm you and really mess up the rest of your life and maybe even your spiritual life forever, and God will say, okay, I get that. Here's something better for you. You can have anything you want except for the things that are bad for you, and God will instead give you what is good. James goes on in chapter 4, right after the verse that we read, and says this, you ask and you don't get because you, 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 you have these wants and desires, but you don't have because you do not ask. And then he goes on and he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He says, you, you want to know why you're not getting the things that you want? I think what James is saying there is because they're not good for you. God is ready and willing to hand out all of the bounty of what is good for you. But he will not give you something that will harm you. He will not give you something that will, will seek to end poorly for you. He will not let you split open the golden goose. We have access to the one who owns everything to the one who has created everything, who is powerful over everything, and who is here promised to grant all the good that you can imagine to you. If you are not enticed to pray by these words, if you are still slow to move to him in prayer, if you are content to bear in your life with what you have by your own hands, you are a fool and you are slow to believe and slow to hear what Jesus Christ, the Lord of all things, is telling you. Go to the Lord in prayer. Cannot stress enough how easy it is for God to give you good things and how ready he stands to do that. It's been argued, and this is not how economics works, so please don't take me saying this, but it's been argued if Bill Gates, with all of his cash, was walking down the street and a $100 bill slipped out of his back pocket and fell on the ground, he would earn more interest in the second from his bank account than it would take for him to stop and turn around and pick up that $100 bill. That's just interest. That's just how much money his money is making him. That's wealthy beyond anything that we can imagine. We're not talking about being a millionaire, which is hard for so many to imagine what you would do if somebody just handed you a million dollars, put it in your bank account. What would life be like? 
We're not talking about $100 million, which is something completely on a different level. We're not talking about a billion dollars or a $100 billion. He is wealthy beyond our comprehension, and he is a pauper compared to God. God's goodness is infinite. His riches utterly and totally unending. His gifts are lavish, and they're overwhelming. It's not just easy, but he desires to. It's natural for him to. He longs to give good things to his children. Ask, seek, and knock. We don't think fully realize the goodness, the kindness, the giving nature of our God. The psalmist recognized it. In Psalm 16, he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is, there is a, I, whenever I, I see that, I think of my children at home. We've got our living room. We've got piles of toys for the two, two boys. And it's just like, there's a pile of joy that is at the right hand of the Father that knows no bounds for you. Paul so you don't think it's just one of those weird Old Testament promises that are overwhelming. It says the same thing to the Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, let no one boast in men, for all these things are yours. Paul or Apollos or Cephas, those men have been given to you. You don't need to follow them. They've been given to you for your benefit. God gave you the apostles. He gave them to you for your good. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God. Everything you could want is literally at the tip of your tongue. Just pray knowing that anything that you say that is bad, that will lead you down a bad path, the, the Father who knows all things, who knows the beginning from the end, will correct your wants and desires and only give you that which is good for you. Secondly, not only do we have a better golden goose, we follow a better golden rule. We follow a better golden rule. The word so here, even when I read it, it's hard even to read. It just seems out of place. It's odd. How does this form a conclusion for verses 7 through 11? And the answer is, what we find later in the verse, it doesn't quite do that. It does seem a bit off target. Later in the verse, though, we read this line that says, for this is the law and the prophets. And we're reminded all the way back in the beginning of chapter 5 that Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. So it's probably best to see this particular little rule as a summary of everything that happened from sort of midway through chapter 5 and all of the six things that Jesus laid out for us as examples of greater righteousness back in chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7. This is the summary of it. Do you want to know what all of that stuff, I already, he's like, I boiled down the Old Testament to these things and now I'm going to boil it down even further. And the, the thing that's left at the bottom of the pool is this golden rule. One way to think through what the, the sermon itself sort of looks like is a reverse version of the Ten Commandments. And artificially, but helpfully, people have always talked about the Ten Commandments with its vertical conditions and its horizontal conditions. So the vertical ones are those things that we owe to God. You are to have no other gods before me. 
You are to make no graven images. You're not to take my name in vain. And even the Sabbath has really this vertical dimension because he, he made everything in seven days, and on the seventh day, you should rest as God has rested. The rest of them seem to be horizontal. They're, they're dealing with people in the world. So the, the Sabbath also contains, you know, information about how you should treat slaves and, and other things on the, on the horizontal level. And then it gets into things like, well, you've got to honor your mother and father. You, you've got to not murder or commit adultery or steal, give false witness, covet. Those things, adultery, right out. You, you cannot do these things. So the horizontal commands that he gives. And Jesus does something like that, but he flips the two ways of talking about it. Chapter 5 is all about our relationship with other people. So you are to seek reconciliation. You're not to be foaming at the mouth and angry. Lust is out. Retribution is out. Misleading people is out. This is how you handle yourself horizontally. And then in chapter 6, he really seems to, to turn and talk about your vertical relationship. How are you to trust God as you walk through the world? Well, you trust that God will repay you for the good things that you do. You, you trust God when you pray to him. You trust God with anxiety and concern. You trust God. Chapter 7 then seems to return to these two sides. The beginning of chapter 7 in judging others, kind of boiling it down even further. What does it mean to follow the Lord? What does it mean for how you treat other people? Well, you, you have mercy like he has mercy. You're, you're slow to judge, slow to be critical. And then, verses 7 through 11, we are to pray. He summarizes it all. And this beautiful golden rule of verse 12. What you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. It is the absolutely fullest ethical statement you could get in one sentence. This is how you ought to live your life before other people. It helps, though, to focus on what it doesn't say. What it doesn't say is you are not to treat others as they have treated you. It is not the golden rule as a reiteration of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That rule, by the way, is great. It's good and important. It's important for people who are in positions to actually carry out criminal punishments on others. It's good for states, in other words, to make sure that justice is actively carried out. But it is not there for your own personal relationships. So we don't pursue eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but we pursue to treat others as we would have them treat us. I think, though, unconsciously, sometimes consciously, that this is exactly the way we read it, or at least it's the way in which we live our lives. We're allowed to treat others the way they treat us. If someone's rude to us, it fully legitimizes us being rude to them. If they're snarky, we have every right to be snarky. If they're angry with us, then we have every right to match them level for level, decibel for decibel in our anger. But Jesus' rule completely does away with that. The rule's application occurs, notice this brilliantly, outside of anything that the other person has done to you. At no point in time do you get to consider their actions when you consider what you do. The only thing you are to consider is how do I want to be treated? What is, what is my desire for how I want people to treat me? And then you are to do that. But what you don't do is take into account their actions. How do I want them to treat me when they're being such a jerk? Right? 
that's not what it says. It's not like we can you know, avoid doing that kind of thing, but you really ought to try. You are only to respond to people based on how you want to be treated. The actions of others, whether hateful, dismissive, infuriating, should have no basis in your decision of how to respond to them or how to act before them. Secondly, and importantly, this law does not say that you should expect that others will treat you as you have treated them. We don't get to hold others hostage with our goodness. We don't get to say, listen, I've been kind to you. I don't understand why you aren't being kind to me. It's not that unfair treatment shouldn't get noticed and highlighted. The Bible does this all the time. I, I, was, I was innocent before them, and they mistreated me. I, I spoke kind words to them, and they repaid me with brutal things. It's not that that's unjust. It's just that that has no basis on, on what our expectations for people are to be. We live in a world that's fallen. We know that people aren't going to live by this rule. The rule isn't for other people. Again, that sort of hermeneutical principle that you come first when you read. It's written for you, not for everyone else. We ought to actively treat others as we would have them treat us. Do you want to be treated with respect, with honor, with love, with kindness, with compassion, with generosity, with goodness, with patience? then act that way. The same thing applies to what God has called for us to do. You, do you want and pray for God to forgive you? Then you need to forgive others. Do you want God to be merciful to you? Then, then you ought to be merciful to others. Continually keep before yourself how you want to be treated. Ask yourself, what do you think is important? Is respect the most important thing to you? Do you want people to respect you? Then you have to be the kind of person who is quick to give respect. Do you want compassion? Do you want people to be compassionate to you? Then you have to be compassionate as well. Generous, loving, being filled with courtesy and kindness. This is how you ought to act. When we apply this, we quite honestly need to use our imagination. I, I can't fill this in completely for you because the law is, thankfully for you, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, as you wish that they would do to you, not how Doug would have them do to you. I've got good ideas if anybody wants to ask. I hope. But it's how you want to be treated. And with this, it, it helps to not be overly specific, Right? Brie and I have birthdays eight days apart. I'm going to apply this, and she's getting a beautiful new driver for her birthday because that's what I want for my birthday. And don't tell her she's gone this morning. She'll never know. It'll be a huge surprise. So you, you can't be overly specific with it, right? You can't say, it, it, it's not, it doesn't work in your life. It's hard to put yourself in a position that you just don't understand. If you are a punctual person, and there's someone who always shows up late, and you think, well, how would I want people to treat me when I'm late? Some of you are thinking, I don't know because I've never been late. I don't know. I don't, uh, why would anyone be compassionate to me? In that? But stop, stop overthinking. You can't always put people in your position. Just generally, how do you want people to treat you? With kindness, with patience, with goodness. That is exactly how 
you should handle yourself. It takes imagination, it takes determination, but you can do it and you can live this way. Continually check your own attitude and see if you are actually treating other people the way you want to be treated. Now, I should add at this point in time that if this is a summary, given the way that we've laid things out, it is a bit one-sided, right? There's no vertical component really to this. It seems a little bit missing. Everything is just on the horizontal plane. But to be frank, that seems fitting because now God is himself on the horizontal plane. God is here in Jesus. The way that we respond to Jesus is the very way that we respond to God. And most importantly, it's how Jesus is ending this part of his sermon and connecting it to the first part. He says, this is indeed the summary of all of the law of the prophets. And Jesus himself has said, fulfilling the law and the prophets, doing the things that they command of me, that's, that is why I have come. Jesus has given us a number of very pressing and difficult things throughout the sermon. We're to watch our anger, to keep our word, let our yes be yes. We are to love our enemies. When reviled, and slandered, and persecuted, we are to love them. When had people come and ask absolutely ridiculous things of us, we are not only to meet them, but to go beyond those things. When filled with anxiety and concern in our lives, we are to summon the faith to put them aside. These are not easy tasks. It's grave responsibilities that Jesus has placed before everyone who would follow him. But Jesus has not asked one thing of you that he himself doesn't do because he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He wants others to think of him, to listen to him, to trust him, and he calls on them to have a radical trust in God. He has turned around and said that people who follow him will be persecuted for him. He will, they will suffer for him. And given the fate that many of the prophets had, which he compares you to, likely some of you will die. Probably not people in this room, but people who have heard these words. And yet we need to realize that Jesus is willing to do all of that for us and has indeed done all of that for us. Jesus shows us that his treasure is indeed in heaven. He can, listen, the man can multiply fish and loaves from nothing. Imagine what he can do to gold. His treasure is in heaven. He commands the angel armies. He could have obliterated everything with a word of his power. He can make the seas be still. He can bring the dead to life. He could have had anything that he wanted to. He laid up treasures in heaven. John, by the way, helps us in that. He says, you know, if all the things that Jesus did were actually publicly portrayed, we couldn't fill them up in the book. Jesus did a number of really excellent things that he probably didn't let anyone know about because his treasure was in heaven. He will be radically devoted to the will of God, and he will be persecuted for our sake, and he will die for our sin. Jesus asks nothing of you that he has not already given. You must forgive. He has forgiven. You must reconcile. His death 
has reconciled. You must love your enemies. He has loved you. He asked you to be patient and kind and generous. He has been all of those things to you. God is good enough to give us his very presence in the person of Jesus Christ. Trust him with everything that you own and are. Put all of those golden eggs into that basket because God will never fail you. But he is good to give you even more in return. Trust in the Lord. Let us pray. Father, your will is good for us. But our sin, sometimes the sin of the world, makes it hard for us to complete your will. It's hard for us to follow and walk in your ways. We are weak in spirit. We're desirous of things that are not good for us. We are slow in prayer and blind even to our own needs. Forgive us, Lord. Lead us. Give us understanding and wisdom that we might walk in your ways and hope fully in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things for our good and for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.